I need you to flip forward a few pages in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3 is our text uh, for part 2 of our Make Room series today. If you weren't here with us last week, we studied the next chapter, 2 Kings chapter 4, because it has this incredible story of, of God multiplying this lady's oil for her uh, as she collects empty jars. And we discovered this principle that if we will empty it, God will fill it. Uh, that, that in fact, in order to see a move of God, many times it requires intentional emptiness on our part. If we want to experience the fullness of God, we're going to have to endure the emptying of self. Uh, why was that the first message? Why wouldn't we start in 2 Kings 3 and then go to 2 Kings 4? Well, I had to get that in before the fast. Uh, had to encourage you before the fast because the fast is absolutely intentional emptiness. Uh, and it's exactly what we are doing. Um, today we're going to go back one chapter. What we're doing in this series and Make Room, at least my plan for the first part, I don't know how long this series will go, but we're, we're going to begin with a, really a study of the life of Elisha. Uh, you may be familiar with Elisha, uh, you may not. Elisha is, is not one of the most famous prophets in Scripture, but he's what I would consider maybe one of the most underrated prophets in Scripture. Uh, he's somebody who God used in some really incredible ways, and a lot of times I think we overlook what God did through his life and the principles that we can get from them. So today I'm going to teach a, a section of Scripture I've only taught on once before. Uh, and I actually looked it up. Uh, I taught this January 6th. 2013, so just a little bit over 10 years ago. So I think it's fair for me to teach the, now that it's been over 10 years, right? I don't think we're, we're overdoing it. I don't think we're, we're, we're killing this section of scripture to do it once every 10 years. And so today I want to start in 2 Kings chapter 3, um, just to give you a little bit of context for what's going on here. Uh, there are three kingdoms, three nations going to war against one nation, the nation of Israel, which you're obviously familiar with, um, has recruited some help to go to battle. They've recruited the southern kingdom, which is the kingdom of Judah. You don't know, uh, the, the nation of Israel was actually split into two after Solomon's reign ended. And so there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so he recruits his, his boys from Judah to go to war with him. He also recruits some neighbors from Edom. Uh, and so these three nations are going to war against Moab. What's happening here is Moab is supposed to be paying tribute to Israel based on a previous treaty. And they decided, no, we're not paying anymore. Uh, and so Israel says, we're going to go and, and make sure that we get what, what's rightfully ours. So he recruits some help. They go to war. Uh, and it says, verse 9, we'll pick up the story. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom after a roundabout march of seven days. The army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. So this is a problem. We've got three armies, we don't know how many people, uh, but, but three armies full of soldiers, full of presumably horses and chariots, probably some other livestock that they're carrying for food. Uh, there, there's a number of living beings and they are in the Middle East. Uh, and we kind of see a theme here, right? We just saw Elijah in a drought, and now we see these three armies who have run out of water. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody miscalculated something. They either didn't bring enough water with them, uh, or they assumed they would come across water that they did not come across. But somebody made a massive 
error in calculation here. And now we have three armies on the brink of thirsting to death, their livestock on the brink of thirsting to death. They need some rain. One thing that you need to know, one principle that we're going to see as we go through Scripture today and over the next few weeks is only God can send the rain. Only God can send the rain. As much modern technology and scientific brilliance as we have in our generation, we still can't manufacture rain, not on a big scale. They can do it in a room somewhere, but they can't manufacture rain to provide for a desert. They can't manufacture rain to to touch an area that's suffering through drought. We don't have that capability. Only God can send the rain. So the next thing we have to ask as we talk about how only God can send the rain, is what is rain? We know Old Testament passages are given to us for for a number of reasons. They're they're given to us to point to Jesus. They're given to us to give us a historical account of what happened. But but the Bible also teaches that there's there's symbolism in Old Testament passages that that are applicable to our lives. So what is rain symbolic of? What does rain mean? If they're out of rain and they're going to start seeking some rain, believing God for some rain, needing some rain, in this passage, what is, what is rain? Well, rain is two things I believe that we need to know as we go into this. Number one, practically, rain represents God's provision. It represents God's provision. We live at a unique time in human history in that most of us in this room aren't farmers. Uh, most of us in this room aren't responsible for procuring and producing food. That's not our job. In fact, I read actually this week in another study that I'm doing that, that through the vast majority of human history until about the last 100 to 200 years, 90% of human time was spent producing and finding food. 90% for most generations. I don't know about you, but I don't spend anywhere near 90% of my time getting food. Now, on the Daniel Fast, I might spend 90% of my time thinking about food. Uh, but I don't spend 90% of my time getting food, right? Uh, and, and so food and water were, were life. They were life. And so you can't do agriculture without rain. I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, which is known for a lot of rain. And we always kind of looked at rain as, as a burden. Right? Rain was kind of a pain in the butt. In fact, in my context, I used to read this verse as a kid growing up, completely wrong. Matthew 5.45 says this about God. It says that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so growing up in Seattle, you hear the sun rises on the evil and the good. You're like, that's God's blessing. That's God's provision. The sun rises. Right? And, and then the rain falls on the good and the bad, too. It's like, well, God lets some bad stuff happen to, to, to good people, just like he lets. Now, that's true. But that's not what that verse is saying. That verse is saying these are two blessings that God gives both to the people who are righteous and to the people who are unrighteous. Rain to to the Middle Eastern, to the Jew, to the Arab who received these verses, that was a blessing. Man, that was something that we needed. That was something they prayed for. That was something they believed for. That was something at times they would go years without. And so when it says God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous, that's God's goodness. That's that's God's grace that he allows rain to fall on all of us. So practically, rain represents God's provision in Scripture. Man, that God is going to provide. God is going to meet your needs. God's going to give you what you need. It, It represented food and water. Rain was so critical. But it's not just a practical point here. There's also a prophetic point here. Secondly, prophetically, rain represents God's presence. 
Again and again in scripture, this rain is a picture, a representation of God showing up, of the presence of God, of God's arrival. His spirit is often associated with rain, it's often associated with a river. What does a river come from? It comes from rain, right? And so there's time and time again, we, we see this picture that water represents for us the presence of God, that God would actually show up. In fact, uh, we just talked a little bit about Elijah. Elijah's probably most famous miracle was at Mount Carmel. Uh, at Mount Carmel, he, he stood against 700 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and it was just one prophet of God. And they said, hey, you prepare a sacrifice, and I'll prepare a sacrifice, and you call down rain, or you call down fire, excuse me, and I'll call down fire, and we'll see which one's really God. Well, you, you probably know the story. You're probably familiar with it. Spoiler alert, God wins. Right? Like the, the, the one defeats the 700. Uh, God sends down fire and the whole sacrifice is consumed. But the context of that story is they're in this incredible drought. God has spoken against Israel, against King Ahab because of his wickedness and said, I'm not, I'm not sending rain for a, for a season. For a long time. It's actually a number of years. And so Elijah does this. This miracle takes place and all of a sudden Israel turns their heart back to God. They recognize Baal isn't God, Asherah isn't God, God is God, Jehovah is God, Yahweh is God, and they begin to declare that, and they turn back to God. And as soon as they turn back to God, God sends the rain. It's the very next part of the story, is, is a cloud, as small as a man's hand, appears in the sky. And before you know it, God sends the rain. What is it? It's God's presence returning to Israel. He had withdrawn his presence because of their wickedness, because they had broken the covenant, because they had violated all their promises to him. And now God's presence has returned to his people. So rain represents God's provision, and it also represents God's presence. That's important for you to know as we go through this passage today. I want to give you one more verse really quickly. Psalm 63, 1, David, the psalmist, says this. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. There's this connection consistently drawn between, God, I need your presence, I need you to show up, I need you to arrive in my life, and the desert. The desert represents, the wilderness represents this place where God's presence does not dwell. And so, man, God's, when rain comes, it represents God's provision, and it represents God's presence. Let's get back to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse number 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. He said, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? So, so at some point... This king who has had a bad strategy, who's made a bad decision, who's listened to bad advisors to march his army and two other armies out into the desert with no water, with no provision, with no possibility of finding water. He realizes his mistake, and instead of, what was I thinking, he blames God. Has God done this to us? Why would God allow this to happen to us? I thought God was supposed to be with us. And we can look at that and say how foolish it is, but don't we do the same thing? I mean, how many stupid situations have you gotten yourself into? And you're like, God, yo, what's up? Right? Like, like we all make this mistake. We don't want to put the responsibility on us. We want to turn and be like, God, you, you, I'm supposed to be your child. God, you're, you're supposed to provide for me. You're supposed to look out for me. And so verse 11, Jehoshaphat replied, if you don't know Jehoshaphat, he's the king of Judah. He's a good king. 
Israel basically had zero good kings uh, once the, the kingdom divided. Israel was just wicked, 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 wicked until it shut down. Judah did this roller coaster thing where they'd go from evil king to godly king to evil king to godly king. Well, Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings. He was one of the godly kings. And so he speaks up and he says, is, the, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? So Jehoshaphat says, we, we need to hear from God. We need a word from God. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to get out of this mess that we've made for ourselves. We need to find out what God has to say about this. An officer of the king of Israel answered, well, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So, so at this point in time, Elisha is, is not really anybody big. He's not really anybody significant. This is actually going to be kind of his... The time he makes his mark. It's his first time appearing before kings. His first time speaking. And, and so he's going to make his mark as this successor to Elijah. But at this point, they're like, he was, he was Elijah's water boy. Right? He, the, Elijah was great. Elijah had this great reputation. Uh, and so we, we see kind of some contrast here between Elijah and Elisha. For whatever reason, we have embraced Elijah a lot more than we have embraced Elisha. I think part of it is Elijah is just a better name. Right? Like you don't... You, you don't see kids running around named Elisha very often. I think I met one person in my life named Elisha, and I felt bad for them. Uh, you, you meet a lot of people named Elijah. In fact, we, we were going to name our, our third child Elijah. Uh, that was our, our plan. Noah was actually going to be Elijah at one point in time. Uh, and we had a name picked out. We're going to name him Elijah James. Uh, and then some friends had us out to dinner and sat down, and they were so excited. Like, hey, we want to let you know we're pregnant, and it's a boy, and we're going to name him Elijah James. And we're like, oh. What are the chances, right? Uh, and so they jacked our names, so we decided, you know what, we're going to let them. He can have Elijah James. We'll, we'll find another one. And, and we ended up, Noah ended up being absolutely the right name for our son. And God knew what he was doing in that. Uh, but I, we like the name Elijah. We never considered naming our kid Elisha. It was never on the list, never made the cut. It just wasn't there. So, so what is the difference? It's just a very, very small difference in letters. Well, Elijah means my God is Jehovah or my God is Yahweh. Uh, that that he, he is who my God is. And then Elisha means that God is my salvation. Strong name. Makes a strong statement. You know, Elisha actually did 14 miracles in Scripture. Elijah did seven. Elisha prayed for a double portion, and he actually performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. And yet Elijah continues to, to have better street cred than Elisha does. Elijah, I think, had better street cred for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Elijah just, for, for lack of a better word, Elijah kind of had some swag. Like, like he had some style about him. You'll, you'll see in 2 Kings as, as we transition from Elijah to Elisha, as Elijah is about to be taken up to heaven, he comes up to a river with Elijah, Elisha next to him, and, and Elijah just takes off his cloak and smacks the river with it, and it parts, and they walk across. Like, that's dope, right? Like, that's, that's just cool. Like, he just had like an like a, like a air about him, right? Like, you just walk around, and man, you just take off your hoodie, and you're like, what's up, right? Like, Elisha, on the other hand, the, the first thing we find about him after Elijah leaves uh, is we find a bunch of teenagers making fun of him for being bald. Uh, so, so Elisha just doesn't have the same kind of, kind of physical uh, attractiveness, right? Like he just doesn't have the same, the same pull as Elijah did, and yet God used Elisha so much greater. Twice as much. And so Elisha kind of gets underrated, but, but we're going to see some awesome stuff from him over the next few weeks. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. Jehoshaphat knew who, who Elisha was. 
the, the king's officer may have been dismissing Elisha and saying, hey, he's just a water boy. But Jehoshaphat, the, king of, the godly king, said, yes, this is a man of God. The Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? I love Elisha. Elisha, he, he's not, the king came to see me? Like, like, he's not, like, flattered. He's not, like, excited. He's like, you're wicked. You're not following. You did this to yourself. Why are you trying to put this on God? Like, he immediately says, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. He's like, man, you, you, you got a whole wicked family? Go talk to their people. When he's saying that, he's, he's not telling them to go to the prophets of God, by the way. When he's saying go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, he's telling them to go to Baal's prophets. Tell him to go to the, 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 the prophets that don't serve God. Uh, no, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. So again, the, the king of Israel says, man, this, this was God who did this. Uh, and so Elisha said in verse 14, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I didn't have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not even look at you or even notice you. But because, what, what, what do we learn from this? Pays to have godly friends. <laughs> Pays to associate with people who are better than you are. It's not about what you know. Sometimes it's about who you know. The king of Israel is going to get a word from God, not because of who he is, but because of who he's with. Because he's associated with Jehoshaphat. Now, verse 15 is, is one of my favorite underrated verses in scripture. I love this so much. We're not going to get to talk about it real long today, but there will be another message coming up somewhere down the road in 2023. We're going to go into this a lot more in depth, but check this out. Elisha says, but now bring me a harvest. They want a word from God, and Elisha says, I need some background music. <laughs> you ever watched a movie that was like really dramatic and really intense, and then you went and you found like an edited version that takes out the background music, and it just doesn't feel the same at all. They, 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 there is power in music, right? Like music creates an atmosphere. My kids have watched Home Alone so often that they can like start singing along with the background music. And they're like, right? Like they know like what this music means, what it represents, what's about to go down. Kevin's about to hurt some idiots, right? Like it's about to be some pain inflicted on some stupid people in Home Alone. There's this power in music. God placed that in your DNA. God designed you to respond to music. And as Elisha is getting ready to receive a word from God, to give a word from God to these kings, he says, I need a harpist. I need some music. I need some anointing. Why don't we bring prayer partners down during our worship experience now rather than the end of service the way we used to do it? Because we believe that the harpist creates a place for God to speak. There is spiritual truth in that. Why do I bring Hunter down as, as I present Jesus to people so often to have some background music, man, to create an atmosphere because we believe that the word of the Lord comes oftentimes on music. Man, you want to hear from God? Put on some worship music. When you hear from God, start looking at what are you listening to. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so what you listen to is going to determine what you hear. He says, now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Exactly what Elisha expected happened. 
The atmosphere was created, and God shows up. Verse 16, and he said, this is what the Lord says. This is not what you want today. You don't want what the prophet says. You don't want what the, the crying preacher says. You don't want what somebody's social media post says or, or what the culture says. You want to know what does God have to say. This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. Not what you expect when you're asking God for some rain. God, we need some water. God, you, you made water come out of a rock in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers. You made water appear in other places. God, we need you to bring some water. Well, God doesn't say, here's how I'm going to provide water. He says, I want you to dig a ditch. Here's the principle for us as we go through this series, through this year, with this theme of make room. If you want to make room for God to move, dig a ditch. We can say it this way. If you want to make room for God to move, grab a shovel. Go to work. If you want to make room for God to move, dig a ditch. We could phrase it this way. If you want to change the world, dig a ditch. Dig a ditch. How does it begin? How does it start? It be starts by simply digging a ditch. He appears, the word of God comes, and he says, I want you to make this valley full of ditches. Now understand this. Oftentimes, God doesn't give you the next move. He actually gives you a move beyond that or a couple of moves beyond that. When God told them to dig a ditch, they weren't surrounded by shovels and just went digging. This was an army that was gone to war. They probably had a few shovels with them, a small number of shovels with them, but they didn't have enough shovels for every man to grab a shovel and go to work. God says, I want you to dig a ditch. The easy thing to respond is, well, God, we need some shovels. Well, God doesn't provide shovels. God doesn't supernaturally, it's not in the text, so I'm pretty sure it didn't happen because I'm pretty sure the author of Kings would have recorded if supernaturally all of a sudden, man, everybody just had a shovel in their hand ready to go to work, right? I don't think shovels showed up. I don't think shovels were part of the provision. I think God gave them a project and he stepped back and said, you figure it out. Sometimes God gives us a place to get to and we're like, I don't know how to get there, God. You've called me to this, but I don't have the right degree. You call me to this, I don't have the right credentials. I don't have the right experience. I don't know how to do this. God, you've called me to this, but I don't have enough money to make this happen. God, you've called me to this, but I'm missing this. God, you've called me to be a parent, but I haven't gotten married. God, you've called me to walk in this, but I don't have this other thing in between. And oftentimes God calls us to something, gives us a vision for something that's a few steps beyond where we are now. And then he steps back and he's like, how bad do you want it? The army's wanted it bad enough. And so what did they do? I don't know exactly how they did it, but they went and they started making shovels. They started cutting down some trees. They started using their swords, whatever tools they had, to start building some shovels so they could walk out the word of the Lord and make the valley full of ditches. Verse 17, Elisha says, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain. You're not going to see it, but understand this. This valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. God didn't just send water in the valley. If he would have sent water in the valley, he would have washed them out. If he just sent water in the valley, he, he would have bogged them down. They would have gotten stuck as this dry desert land all of a sudden fills with water. They wouldn't have been able to get out of there. So God says, you need to dig some ditches so the water will collect, so the water will gather, so it will be useful and beneficial to you. See, sometimes when we ask God for something, if we don't do it the way he wants us to, the thing that we're asking for is actually going to create problems for us. So he didn't just send water, he said, you're going to have to dig a ditch. 
verse 18. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. I need you to know this. That thing you're believing God for, that thing you're pursuing him for, that thing you need more of in your life in 2023, that thing you're making room for, it is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. The reason why you don't have it yet is not because it's too hard for God. It's not because God's trying to figure out how to get it to you. It's not because God's like, man, let me work on this. I got to go watch this YouTube tutorial and I'm going to get back to you once I figure it out. Okay, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He's the God who spoke into nothing and created something, created everything. It's easy for God to provide for you. It's easy for God to show up in your life. It is not hard. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. He says, I'm giving you total victory. Somebody needs to grab that today. God's giving you total victory. Not just partial victory, not just a little victory. He's giving you total victory. Verse 20, the next morning, about the time for the offering of the sacrifice, there it was. About the time that they worshiped God. About the time they went before him. As soon as they did what they knew they were supposed to do, God's presence showed up. God's provision showed up. Water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water exactly what they needed. They got as much as they needed, more than they needed. If you read the rest of the story, and you will, if you're reading through our Bible reading plan, you're going to see that they, everything that God said comes true. They get total victory. They, they, they get enough water for their animals, for their people, and they march off, and they see this victory come to pass. Here's what I want to tell you today. Stop waiting for what you want and start working what you got. Stop waiting for this thing that you're asking for. God, I'm just waiting on you. God, you're going to have to do this. God, I want you to see this happen in my life and start working what you got. You may not have the ability to produce rain, but you do have the ability to dig a ditch. And so often we sit back and I'm just waiting on God, just ready for God to show up. God's going to do something great. And there's, there's, man, there's, there's a time to wait on God and there's a time to trust in him and to be patient, absolutely. But there's also a time to grab a shovel and to go to work. As we get ready to close today, I want to share with you very quickly four truths about ditch digging. Four truths about this thing. If, if you're going to dig a ditch, what does that mean? How does that look? Well, number one, dig, digging a ditch is an act of faith. Ditch digging is an act of faith. It's, an act, you, you, it's going to require some faith. Required faith for them. They're, they're in the desert in a drought. I don't know if you've ever tried to dig in a place where it was dry but digging up dry ground is even that much harder than drinking, digging up moist ground, right? Like, like, like it's difficult. And so I guarantee you there was somebody whose shovel hit that dry ground rock and it went nowhere who looked back up at Elisha like, are you sure? Like, like, like we barely got any strength left. We haven't had any water for days. I've only got this much energy left. And you want me to use the last of my energy trying to create a hole in this rocky ground for some water that will hopefully maybe come? It's an act of faith. Stepping out and pursuing that, that preparation for your next step, it's an act of faith. Man, getting ready for whatever God has for you, it's an act of faith. Are you ready to step out? You guys who are doing the Daniel fast right now, you're digging a ditch and you're taking a step of faith. I don't know what God wants to do through this fast. I don't know what God's going to show me. I guarantee you, every time I've done the fast where God has shown up and revealed something to me, done something in my life, it was nothing that I expected when I started the fast. I'm not saying that that never happens. I'm not saying that'll never happen for you. You may put something before God and place some expectations. He may meet you exactly where you expected. But man, it's never happened that way for me. 
God's always shown me something totally different than what I thought I was going to get going into the fast. But what did I do? I dug the ditch, and God's provision, God's presence showed up through that ditch, through that fast. Digging a ditch is an act of faith. Secondly, digging a ditch is an act of obedience. We don't like that word. We're, we're people of grace, not people of law. We don't have to do anything. God sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. Don't get me wrong. God blesses us regardless. God's more than good to us, whether we are good or whether we're not. But there is a portion that God has for you that is reserved for your obedience. There is a section of what God has ordained for you to receive that you will never receive if you don't walk in obedience to him. And it's really easy for us to live for ourselves, do our own thing, get ourselves into trouble just the way the king of Israel did. And then show up and be like, God, where are you at? God, what are you doing? But I believe if we walk in obedience from the beginning, we're going to miss out on a whole lot of hardship. We're going to miss out on a whole lot of difficulty. And we're going to see God's provision in an incredible way. But the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and says, make this valley full of ditches. And they obeyed. Wasn't easy, wasn't comfortable, wasn't natural. They obeyed, they made the valley full of ditches, and they received God's blessing, his provision, and his presence because of it. Number three, ditch digging is work. It's work. It's a dirty word, isn't it? A church on the move that used to teach us that ministry was spelled W-O-R-K. Man, you, you want to see somebody's life changed? Go to work. Ditch digging is work. Years ago when we were in our house in South Haven, we ended up with a, a plumbing challenge, and we, we had a leak under the slab. And it was going to be thousands of dollars to get it repaired. And so my dad uh, came out here to try to help me find a solution, and he came up with this whole plan to reroute the plumbing through the garage, and it required us building out a case and getting all this plumbing run through the garage and then digging a, a whole new ditch out front to connect it, uh, and, and it was work. Uh, and we had to hire some, some 662 teenagers, some former students. But I think I have a picture. If you'll go ahead and put that up for us. This is, you can't really see, but this is this massive ditch that we dug out in front of our house. Uh, very, it was, it was just work. By the way, if you ever need to dig a ditch, Sean McLaughlin, Caleb's brother. Sean probably dug 80% of that ditch and the rest of us dug 20% and admired Sean. Uh, Sean is a monster. He's a beast. Uh, and so very, very thankful for, for having the right people around me uh, when we needed to dig a ditch. Um, ditch digging is work. It's back-breaking, sweat-bringing work. There's going to be some work that's required for you to prepare for the move that God wants to do in your life. Are you willing to go to work? Man, even when you haven't yet seen the provision, even when the rain hasn't yet showed up, are you willing to keep on digging that ditch, keep on moving that dirt, keep on creating that void and that hole and that emptiness? Stop waiting for what you want and start working what you got. Start working it. Ditch digging is work. And then lastly, number four for you today, last truth about ditch digging is ditch digging creates a place of emptiness. It's literally what a ditch is, right? It's a hole. It's a place where, where you have created a hole for water to run. We got a ditch out in front of our house so, so that when the rain comes, the rain gathers in the ditch and not in our yard. 
not in our driveway, right? Like that's the whole purpose of a ditch is it's a void, it's a place of emptiness to gather the rain. This digging creates a place of emptiness. Only God can send the rain. Write this down. But I can build a ditch. I put it first person so that you can encourage yourself with it, so you can stand on it, so you can, you can believe God for it. Only God can send the rain. But I can't build it. I can't dig a ditch. In a moment, we're going to invite people who don't know Jesus to accept Jesus. I can't force anybody into the kingdom of God. I can't make anybody respond to the move of the Holy Spirit. Only God can do that. But at the end of every one of our services, we invite people to respond and choose Jesus. Why? Because we're going to dig a ditch. We're going to create a place of emptiness that God can fill. Does he do it every service? No. Does somebody respond every time? No. But praise God, they do sometimes. Praise God, somebody responds. Praise God, that ditch that we dig gets filled time and again with somebody who says, I need Jesus. We can do this with, with any number of spiritual disciplines, man. We talked about the power of the harpist. Give it up for our harpist, man. Give it up for this man who, who comes up to help create an atmosphere. What's our worship experience? Just digging a ditch. God, we're going to create some emptiness. Where, what, what does worship do? Worship takes the emphasis off of me, and it puts it on Jesus. Takes the focus off of what I'm going through and what I need and what I'm angry about or hangry about or whatever my emotions happen to be. And it's like, no, I'm going to step beyond that, and I'm going to recenter Jesus on the throne because that's where he belongs. And by taking myself off the throne, I create an emptiness that Jesus can fill on the throne that's what it does that's the power of it only God can send the rain but I can't dig a ditch in order to experience the fullness of God we said this last week you have to endure the emptiness of self so what you need to do grab a shovel start digging start digging dig a ditch create a place where God can move what do we say the rain is the rain is God's provision create a ditch, you create a place for God to provide and for God to show up. And he will. He does it again and again and again. Would you pray with me, church?